9.30. Deuteronomy 7. Demands, demands, demands. It's on. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 12. <clears throat> and I, I've made the comment several times that the, the Mosaic covenant was a good covenant. Maybe you've, you've had the impression that it was a burdensome, burdensome covenant, that it was a, uh, a toilsome covenant, that it was a heavy burden for the people. What the rabbis and what the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day had turned it into had become a heavy burden. But I, I want you to see in, in the, the second half of chapter 7, this is chapter 6 and chapter 7 really is the heart of Deuteronomy. And I would say Deuteronomy is the heart of of the Old Testament. So if you want to, to uh, if you want a grasp of the Old Testament, read chapter 6 and chapter 7 over and over. And specifically, these verses um, show us what Israel had to gain from the covenant. It shows why this was such a good covenant. The, the first 11 verses was, was Israel's uh, 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 obligations to God. Now, this is what God is giving back to Israel. Verse 12. Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep you, keep with you his covenant and his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you. And multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your new wine and your oil, the increase of your herd and the young of your flock in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness and he will not put on you any of the harmful diseases of Egypt which you have known, but he will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eye shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. If you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them. You shall well remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt. The great trials which your eyes saw and the signs and the wonders and the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which the Lord your God brought you out. So shall the Lord your God do to all peoples of whom you are afraid. Moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet against them until those who are left and hide themselves from you perish. You shall not dread them for the Lord your God is in your midst. A great and awesome God. The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You will not be able to put an end to them quickly, for the wild beasts would grow too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them before you and will throw them into great confusion until they are destroyed. He will deliver their kings into your hands so that you will make their name perish from under heaven. No man will be able to stand before you until you have destroyed them. 
the graven images of their gods, you are to burn with fire. You shall not cover the silver or the gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, or you will be snared by it. For it is an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not bring an abomination into your house, and like it come under the ban. You shall utterly detest it, and you shall utterly abhor it, for it is something banned. I think if we could summarize this this attitude that Moses is instructing the people of Israel to have, it's what Paul says in the book of Romans. If God be for you, who can be against you? If this is your God, you, you've seen all that he can do. Or ra- rather, actually, you've seen about a fraction of what he can do. If that is the God who has called you into covenant, why are you looking with envy upon the nations? That is, that is the heart of this covenant, and it's a covenant that the people of Israel failed to keep. Let's pray. Lord, may we learn from their error. May we remember that you are a kind and merciful and gracious and powerful and faithful God. May we remember that you are a holy God. May we be mindful, (coughs) thoughtful, considerate. May we dwell heavily upon the grace and the mercy and the kindness and the love that you have given to us. May we remember what you did in saving us and may may that memory, may that remembrance produce in us a profound change. May, May remembering your salvation of your people lead us to gratitude. May it lead us to worship. May it lead us to repentance of sin. Thank you for being the kind of God that you are. Amen. And lest I be a snare to you all, I need to set my timer. Okay, open to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We're taking a slight detour from our exposition of Ephesians. Didn't have anything else going on this week, so I thought, why not tackle a passage that most pastors would probably avoid? And I can't talk and flip pages at the same time, apparently. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 to 30. The Christian and lust. As I said, this, is a, this can be a very difficult passage. The issue of sexual sin. And it's not difficult because the Bible's unclear. The Bible is abundantly, adamantly clear about sexual sin, but it's difficult because the culture has been swallowed up in sexual sin and it's still being swallowed up in sexual sin. And sadly and unfortunately and tragically, many professing Christians get snared along the way. And when the church tries to be the church and tries to call a spade a spade and 
identify sin and to be biblical in identifying and responding to sin, things can get messy. Things can get painful. According to a 2018 study done by Psychology Today, 98% of men surveyed reported to viewing pornography within the past six months. And the, uh, among the women that were surveyed, it was between 20 to 50%. The largest pornography website reported in 2018 that it had a daily average of 92 million individual and unique viewers. The pornography industry nets roughly 12 billion dollars annually, which one source tells me it is more than the revenues of NBC, ABC, and CBS combined. It is a major, major industry. Another study showed that one quarter, 25% of every internet search that is done is for sexual content, and that the average age of pornography viewers is getting younger and younger each year. You may say, Aaron, that, that, that's outside the church. I mean, pagans are going to paganate. That, 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 that's what we expect from the world. That's what we expect from unbelievers. It's different inside the church. Yeah, but unfortunately, the difference is not very much. In a recent survey done by Lifeway, 68% of church-going men and 33% of church-going women admitted to regularly, not just once in a while, regularly, habitually viewing pornography. And those are the ones who admitted it. How many lied out of embarrassment? How many in that moment said, you know what, I repent right now. Yes, I was... Yes, I've been looking at it lately, but never again. Never again, and so I can, I can check off. No, I haven't. You can go back and read the newspapers, and you will find no shortage of evangelical leaders who have been disgraced, who have been thoroughly discredited for being caught and snared in sexual sin. Just last month, <coughs> as we were uh, boarding a plane to go down to Las Vegas, I... I uh, found out that Jerry Falwell Jr., president of the largest Christian university, president of the university that his father founded, the moral majority, the, the, the spokesman, the figurehead for the moral majority, was let go and thoroughly discredited for admitting to an affair that he'd had in his marriage. And so, beloved, it is, this is a serious issue of the utmost for the church. Peter says in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins with the household of God. And what I earnestly want us to avoid is falling into the ancient error of ancient Israel and think that by virtue of privilege, that we can stand on the shoulders of of our predecessors, and that we can just coast right into the kingdom of God with no effort and no sacrifice and no, at no cost to ourselves. Now, this, as I said earlier, this, this topic can get very messy if we try to be biblical. 
It's entirely easy. to. Uh, we, we, we could totally make this easy and be unbiblical and make a few compromises here and there and just never bring it up, but that's not being biblical. There's a tendency in a history of, of churches and pastors and Christians treating this topic of sexual sin very poorly. And I would say there's generally two, great, two common ways that sexual sin is handled. One is to emphasize the law, to be heavy on law and to be so legalistic, to, to emphasize the seriousness of the sin, the heinousness, the, the wrongness of the sin, which it is wrong and it is heinous. But to pound the pulpit so hard on the sinfulness of the sin to the extent that when it comes out that someone has, has broken it, that they've been caught in sexual sin, they have been so beat up, they've been so put out, put down and they've been cast out so hard that the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, that grace and mercy is nowhere to be seen. The very grace and mercy and forgiveness, these are the very things the sinner needs to appropriate. These are what the sinner needs to receive, but they've been hit by the law so hard they're nowhere in sight. That's, that's one egregious, erroneous way to respond. The other is to go to the other side of the, you know, let, let the pendulum swing so far to the other side of the spectrum and to just respond with absolutely no law, no standard, and you just shower them with love and acceptance and grace and absolutely no judgment, no discernment whatsoever. And in so doing, the wrongness the heinousness, the sinfulness of the sin, the offense of the sin, it is marginalized or downright overlooked to the extent that the offense is not really an offense. It's more like a whoopsie or an upsie. And there's no need for repentance. You, you, you give that guy a mulligan. He was just having a bad day. Now, my goal today is not to berate anyone not to shame anyone, not to guilt anyone because of, because of Aaron's personal preferences or, or Aaron's cultural whims or the way that Aaron was brought up. Well, my goal today is, as I said, to address this biblically, <laughs> to put before you what Jesus says on the matter. And having put what Jesus says forth, for you to see that if there's a conflict between the affairs of your heart, if there's a conflict between what is going on in your heart and what Jesus says here, then I pray that you would see that you and he are at odds with something, with, with a subject matter that is that could very well cost your soul, if not devastate your life and bring it to ruin. This is a serious message. In Matthew five twenty-seven to 30, Jesus gives the Bible's instruction regarding adultery, <coughs> followed by an explanation of the, of the seventh commandment. <coughs> and then finally, he gives the biblical response that we're to have, really not just towards sexual sin, but towards any sin. So we have the instruction in verse 27, the explanation in verse 28, and then the response in verses 29 and 30. Let's read the, the scene. You have heard it was said, 
you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, (coughs) tear it out and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Let's consider first the instruction of the Lord as he cites the seventh commandment from Exodus. He says, You have heard it was said, You shall not commit adultery. Marriage is created and instituted by God. And, and being an institution of God, being something that God fashioned, being something that God put forth, that means that, that no government of men, no, no agency, no specific nation, no specific people can claim to have the right or the prerogative to define or redefine marriage to fit their preferences. God made it. God designed it. God alone deserves the right to tell us what marriage is and what marriage isn't. So maybe you think that this uh, uh, deviancy is icky or gross. Maybe you don't. Ultimately, that's not the reason why we oppose this or that. We have to go back. Uh, the, The outside world needs to know this is not my opinion. This is what God has said because God is a God who speaks. The the, the moment people think that you have a gripe with them because of a personal uh, opinion, because of uh, of, a difference in your opinion with theirs, you've lost any weight in your evangelic encounter. So God designed marriage. God made it. God alone deserves the right to tell us what it is and what it isn't. In Genesis 2, we see this account of God creating marriage. It is a, and here's that word again, covenantal union. It is a covenant. It's a covenantal union. It's an arrangement. It is a deal. It is a contract where two separate people, a man and a woman, come together and form a union with the respective other. Genesis 2.24 a man and a woman shall cleave together, cleave together, and, and in so doing, they become one flesh. And Jesus affirms this in Matthew, in the opening verses of Matthew chapter 19. Now, a lot has been written about what being one flesh means, and, and frankly, I don't think we need to make it any harder than it is. Obviously, there's a physical union. You know, and prior to about five or ten years ago, I would say that anyone who's taken an anatomy class could tell you that that a male and a female have have parts that are designed to cooperate with one another. But in light of of where we have gone today, I don't you, you just can't assume people know that anymore. But just a simple uh, examination of the anatomy can tell you this is a complex system meaning this isn't something that just poofed 
into existence, like like the engine of a car or the inner workings of a Swiss, Swiss watch. You see something that is complex. I've taken a biology class. I know to some extent what goes on inside the body. That is a complex system. You look at a system like that, it is irrational to think it just poofed into existence, that it just came from nowhere, that it came as a result of a long and long series of, of seemingly uh, uh, um, consequential reactions of evolution. That's just poppycock. It is a complex system with two respective counterparts designed to work with one another. That's, that's the obvious takeaway. That's the surface level uh, uh, takeaway that we can, that we can uh, take from one flesh. But what's often overlooked is the other ways. Other, and I would, I would stress important ways, vital ways in which husbands and wives are to come together in marriage. The, the union of the bodies really is an expression. It is a picture. It is a type of what they are doing on the emotional level and on the mental level and on the spiritual level and on the ethical level. Now, regarding the physical union, God has designed husbands and wives to to come together physically and sexually for several reasons. One is to enjoy rich fellowship and pleasurable intimacy. For husbands and wives... Sex is a God-ordained blessing to be enjoyed. Listen to how Scripture describe, uh, instructs a husband to enjoy his wife. Proverbs 5:15. Drink water from your own cistern. Fresh water. He, he, he's making it just sound good. Fresh water. It is, it is appealing. It is a refreshing thing. Fresh water from your own well. Verse 18, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Do you hear that? Let it be blessed. Rejoice. The marriage union is to be refreshing. It is to be a source of joy and contentment. As a loving hind and a graceful doe, let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated. Be exhilarated always with her love. I don't know how, how somebody could read a passage like that and go, well, I guess I'm just going to have to live with that person and put up with them. <laughs> so the marriage union is to be a rich fellowship, a blessed fellowship, an intimate fellowship that both sides are to enjoy and benefit from. Second, God designed marriage to be the means by which the married couple is blessed with children. What an incredible blessing. We've had this happen all, just recently. What an incredible blessing to think that God has used your union as the means to bring your little one into the world. And in a very, little sense, very literal sense, they are a symbol of your love for one another. Right? Right? Okay. Got to be on the same page here. Third, sexual union 
and becoming one flesh is intended to safeguard the married couple from immorality and temptation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 5, stop depri- And he's saying this is a command, not an advice, not take this under consideration. This is a command, an imperative. Stop depriving one another. Stop it. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. A man and a wife coming together intimately is intended to be a good, mutually pleasing, safeguarding, God-glorifying, loving expression of physical, emotional, and spiritual union between two people, between two separate people that God has cleaved together into one whole. And as a side note, I think an often overlooked element of of a Christian sexual ethic, what has to be stressed is that sexual intimacy is not intended, it's not designed, it is not meant to be self-directed or self-pleasing, but spouse-pleasing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 3, he instructs the husband, you must perform your duty to your wife. And then he says the same thing to your wife. You must perform your duty to your husband. The goal of intimacy is not to please the self, not to gratify, not to satisfy the self. It's to please and gratify and satisfy your partner. And so come together for the purpose of pleasing your partner. And then in verse 5, if, if and when you do take a break, and, and, and maybe you, do, you should take a break for the purpose of prayer, do so intentionally, but it only for periods that are mutually agreed upon. He says that in verse, in verse 5. 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman. And this, doesn't, this isn't pointing to the inferiority of women. This is saying, men... You need to understand your wife, your wife is not built like you. She, she may not have a drive that matches yours. She may not have preferences exactly like yours. Therefore, thus, for this reason, live with her, dwell with her in such a way that that, like, like Velcro, has latched on to the gray cells. Live in such a way that you understand in some capacities, in some regards, you two are different. And quite frankly, I'm glad that men and women are different. Praise God that there are some differences among us. Philippians 2, 2-4. And for some of you who, uh, for whom this is their favorite passage, maybe you've never looked at the, these verses in this capacity. Be of the same mind, maintain the same love, be united in spirit, be intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. So, in other words, don't be self-centered, be others-centered. But with humility of mind, lowliness of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do Do not merely look out for your personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And I would posit that at front and center of that list of others ought to be the other that you're spending the rest of your life with. 
finally consider how the second greatest commandment applies. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Beloved, what closer neighbor do you have than the person you go to bed with each night and wake up next to each morning? You don't like it when someone presses their desires at at the neglect of your own. You don't like it when others are inconsiderate of what you want and, and what you'd prefer. Don't do that to your spouse. Now, the reason then for the seventh commandment, which Jesus cites, is to safeguard the God-given, God-prescribed, and God-glorifying sexual union of husband and wife, and on all the blessings that come, that come with it and come through it, he's safeguarding that blessed union, this institution, by prohibiting that which poses the most immediate and detrimental threat to the marriage union, and that is the breach that occurs when either partner violates the union violates the covenant and attempts to gratify their sexual desires from someone other than the person God has joined them to. The purpose of the seventh commandment is to keep the marriage covenant safe. Because violating the seventh commandment is to bring is to invite into the marriage that which is most likely to sever it. And if you have a low view of marriage, if it, if marriage in your mind and your estimation, if marriage is really nothing more than just a somewhat formalized domesticated partnership or a means to get a, a really good tax break, then maybe adultery really isn't that big of a deal. But if you see marriage the way God sees it, as a covenant, as a bond, where two people not only give themselves, but by God's own hand are given and are made into one body and one mind and one spirit, and they have fellowship and unity with each other in a way that they don't have with anybody else. I think if you see marriage that way... In a biblical light, you will see how tragic and how devastating and detrimental it is when that breach occurs and that unity is ripped apart as a foreign member is illegitimately brought in between them. Now, the instruction given in the commandment at face value is, is don't do this as to violate this blessed union. Don't engage in illicit sexual activity with someone who is not your spouse because that will devastate and likely sever your marriage. And adultery does devastate and destroy marriages. Some marriages survive, some to be sure, but most don't. Some couples are able to reconcile and rebuild trust. Most don't. And the children are impacted because they see what's going on. They pick up far more than, than you think they do. And consider the example that you have set before them. Question for you. When was it that David's son Amnon violated his stepsister? When was it that Absalom 
violated his father's throne and his harem, which, by the way, harem, don't, don't have a harem either. But w- when did those things happen? After seeing dad sin sexually. You read, you read David's sexual sin in 2 Samuel 11. It is, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, the son dies. Consequence of sin. In chapter 13, Amnon and Tamar. Consequence of sexual sin. And then beginning in, I think it's chapter 15 and going onward, Absalom not only usurps the throne, but he violates his father's wives. Consequence of sexual sin. And you read the rest of the book, David's personal life, David's political life, never recovered after his sexual sin. Adultery is an offense against God who designed marriage. It's an offense against God who joined husband and wife together. It's an offense against the marriage covenant itself. It's an offense against the spouse. It's an offense against the children. And mark this, it is an offense even against the very one committing it. There is something deeply corruptive and degrading and debased about sexual sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.18, every other sin, that's pretty inclusive. There's a lot of sins that you can cram inside that phrase. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man, the pornea man, the perverse man, the sexually sinful man sins against his own body. And there's a reason that disease, depression, debauchery, debasement, destruction, and inevitably death follow those who are given over to sexual sin. You read the the sexual revolution and the, the progressive sexual movement that's going on right now. And there's a lot of things that you don't hear about in the news about the depression and the suicide rates. There is something uniquely catastrophic and horrible about sexual sin and those who are given over to sexual sin. How good was it then for God to make it very clear with the inclusion of the seventh commandment that adultery and along with it all manners of sexual sin was to be strictly and unabashedly prohibited and steered clear of in the community of God's people. I'd say it was very good for God to include that commandment. Verse 28 now takes us to the explanation of the law. And what Jesus does here is he takes away the false sense of security and self-righteousness by revealing the, the heart of the commandment. The Jews had a tendency to focus only on the letter of the law. And they, what they believed was that because they didn't actually do the deed as per written, as long as they didn't physically act out and participate in an adulterous affair, then they are keeping and maintaining the seventh commandment. They, in their eyes, they were spotless in that regard. 
But Jesus explains here that God wasn't concerned only with what was going on on the outside. What was going on in the inside matters too. And last time I checked, 1 Samuel 16.7 is still in the Bible, which says what? Man looks on the what? Outside. God looks on the where? Gold star, Bethany. There are a lot of people who would who would like to think that they are paragons of marital virtue. I have been exemplary. I've been incredibly faithful to, to, to my wife. I've been I've had nothing but the utmost loyalty. I, 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 I've never touched another person. I have had the most fervent of devotion. I am the I am the exemplary husband. Every man should be could only hope that they could stand uh, measure up to my standard. Because I've never had an affair. I've never even come close to having an affair. But if you could see my thoughts, if, if such a man, if his wife. If his thoughts could be projected, it scares me to think of where our technology is going. I wouldn't be surprised in the future if there's a way to you know, plug a little USB into the back of the noggin and actually project your thoughts. I know they're researching that with dream technology. But just imagine if your thoughts could be projected on a screen. Oh, how the walls... the the, the the, the wall of the facade of self-righteousness would come tumbling down as the man who boasted in his marital virtue undoubtedly would cause his wife to bust, burst into tears seeing every time he looked at the secretary. All the thoughts he entertained looking at the lady at the bus stop or the magazines or the internet searches Jesus says in verse 28, anyone, and by this, I know he says anyone who looks at a woman with lust, but the anyone is, is itself gender inclusive, which means a man or a woman. So he, he, Jesus is including the possibility that women are, are capable of lust too. And he's not talking about lesbianism. The implication would be any man who looks at a woman with lust, any woman who looks at a man with lust, lust is an equal opportunity sin. Anyone who looks, anyone who lusts. And this, this, this word for look, there's a word for look, and then there's a word for look. And that's what this is. This is not a glance. This is not a brief glance. This is a gaze. This is to stare at something with intention, with fastidiousness, to study it, to, to long for it. When, when a, this is a look that has become a desirous look, a captivating look. Jesus says anyone who looks like that, anybody who looks with desire, looks with lust, has already become an adulterer in his heart. When did David become an adulterer? 
Second Samuel eleven two, David is walking around, and you can make the argument yeah, he he should have been out at war. It, the passage tells us this is this was the season when kings went to war. David stays home, but he's walking around. This give him the benefit of the doubt. He sees a woman. This is the the end of verse two. He sees a woman, but what kind of woman? A beautiful woman, but not just a beautiful woman. He sees a very beautiful woman. And not just that, he sees a very beautiful in appearance kind of woman. And what, what, what the scripture is telling you, this is so much more than photons of light hitting the old reticles or the lens or the old eyeballs. This is, this is a longing look. This is a desiring look. This is a look that sees something it likes and it sees something it wants. And the moment that he looked with that desire, David became an adulterer. James 1, 14 and 15 says, Each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed. And you could say wooed, tempted, drawn, lured, captivated. When one is enticed, or lured away or drawn by one's lusts, desires, passions. When lust has conceived, says James, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, and that's the idea of, of bringing forth to maturity or, or being carried out to completion. When it, when it reaches the end of the cycle, like a moth or a butterfly coming out of, of, of a cocoon, when it's accomplished, when it's done in development, and it comes out, it brings forth death. Now, it must be said that duration and intensity doesn't make any lust any less lustful. The rabbinic Jews loved to play games with the law and with the scriptures in order to justify sin and to make sin less sinful. And quite frankly, we like to do it too. After noticing an attractive person, and we know we shouldn't, we know we shouldn't look, but we just do a quick look and then back. Or, oh, hey, there's a bird. Oh, oh, there's that bird. Okay, then back here. We, we, we like to play these games to, to justify, to, 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 to make it okay. One eensy, it's just an eensy weensy glance. And it doesn't matter if it's a 10 second gaze or a half second glance. And I would also add it, it doesn't matter if it's directed towards a living person walking down the street or sitting in the cubicle down the hall or on a computer screen 10 inches from your face or a phone screen under the covers. If a sinful lust led to the look of somebody that is not your spouse, it is a sinful lust in the heart. And in God's book, this is the sin of adultery. This is the violation, the breaking of the seventh commandment. 
And what do you call someone who breaks the law? A lawbreaker. Now, how does Jesus say we ought to deal with this sin problem in our heart? We see the response in verses 20, 28 to 30. No, 29 to 30. He begins, if your right hand makes you stumble, what are you supposed to do? Tear it out and cast it from you. Now, immediately... We recognize that Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's not, he's not speaking literal here. He's not teaching self-mutilation. And where am I getting that from? Well, he's already said in verse 28, where is the sphere? Where does sin take place? Where? In the heart. It is in the heart, and it's not the blood-pumping muscle. It, uh, it, is the, it is the center of the self. It is the center of the mind and the will. It is the innermost part of a man. And uh, in the closing verses of Mark chapter 7, there Jesus says, it's not the external things that defile a man. It's not the circumstances you're in. It's, it's not the lot you've been given. It's not the cards you've been dealt that, that, that make you sin. It's what's in your heart as it comes out. Good root produces good fruit. Bad root produces bad fruit. It's not, it's not, the, it's not any one part of your body. It's not any one member of your frame. It is what is inside of you that is the problem. Man's heart is the wellspring of his life. Whatever is in your heart comes out and manifests itself in your actions. Murder and adultery and all, all these other kinds of horrible things, they have their root in the heart, not in the organ. Not in any one organ. Uh, one early church father, who, whose name is Origen, I'm st- this close to getting my words jumbled again, Origen, and he, he's the father of the allegorical interpretation, which is basically um, uh, to find symbolic, uh, 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 parabolic uh, interpretations of Scripture. He, he was the, really the one that put that way of interpreting the Scriptures on the map, and he didn't, he, he, he had a, uh, he emphasized not taking the literal meaning of a passage too seriously. And upon reading this passage, he castrated himself because he took it literally. The one time he really should have followed his own hermeneutic and looked for the symbolic meaning, he took it literally and he 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 had himself castrated and he found out in the final analysis that he still had a lusting problem after his procedure the problem does not lie in any extremity or any part of your body the problem lies within you and me So the required response is is not literally to chop off this or to cut that or to snip that. 
the response, the required response, not the suggested response, not the advised response, not the preferred response, the response. The response to sin is repentance of sin. To chop off the practice, as it were. And that means if necessary, which, which it almost always is, to remove the means and the opportunity to pursue and to exercise and to entertain and to feed that sin. As, and to do it, to cut it off, to snip it, to, to, to kill it, to mortify it as much as possible. The required response of the believer as, as he becomes convicted in sin, as you become convicted of sin, the required response that Jesus has put forth for you is to repent of your sin and to do whatever is necessary to cease the sin, to turn away from the sin. And beloved, it, it, repentance is costly. There's a reason that this illustration is so severe. If repentance is easy for you, there's a good chance you're not repenting right. There's a reason that when people, when Jesus and the and the apostles and John the Baptist called the people to repent, it was scandalous. There's a reason why repentance is is preaching repentance is not popular. So whatever it is that trips you up in sin, whatever it is that causes you to stumble, whatever it is that makes you fall into sin, you stop it and you cease it and you cut it out and you get rid of it and you mortify it and you kill it, whatever the cost. Now, in the immediate immediate context, this this is lust and adultery. And so... We could look at it this way, that if, if, if someone has a lusting problem, if there's, if there's a, a, a man who is lusting and there is a really gorgeous woman down the street, that man needs to stop going down that street. Well, but, but my business takes me there. Well, take your business elsewhere, my friend. Well, I, I can't. That's where the office is. We'll get a new job. Well, I can't do that. Well, you better. Because let Jesus' words speak for themselves. This thing that is making you stumble and sin, this thing that is tripping you up, you have to choose between the sin or the deliverance from sin. There is no middle ground. There is no riding the fence. You need to choose. That's right. Your will, your volition. You need to choose between sin and righteousness. And if you are snared in pornography, in immorality, in any kind of sexual sin or promiscuity, cut it off, stop it, remove it from your life, and do whatever it takes to keep it out of your life. Stop going down that street. And if you need to to take your job elsewhere, if you need to get another job, do it. Do you think God won't provide for you? It comes down to a matter of trust, doesn't it? If 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 it's your computer that's making you stumble, get a filter, get a blocker, have an accountability partner. And if those things aren't sufficient, get rid of the Internet. 
Get rid of the phone. Get rid of the smartphone. Get one of those dial rotary phones. <laughs> Either continue in sin that will lead to judgment or give up the sin and escape the fires of hell. Beloved, you can't have both. Let Jesus' words speak for yourself. It's one or the other, and one of them is better than the other. Anyone think Jesus' words are harsh or abrasive or a little too blunt? There's a reason why at the end of chapter 7 the people were amazed. The rabbis don't speak like this. This man, this hombre, speaks as one with authority. Now, as I said, the immediate context is adultery. But, beloved, I hope you see it. And Mark does this when he covers the same teaching in a different pericope. This principle of the utmost necessity of repentance of sin applies to every kind of sin, no matter what it is. And in, in the immediate, in the previous verses, Jesus has just talked about anger. If you look at someone with anger in your heart, and, and in today, you know, whatever today's equivalent would be, you know, you fool, you stupid, stupid fool, you know, a couple, uh, an a, a asterisk, a pound sign, an at, and a, whatever you, you know, that would be how you would say that today. But if you look at someone you, with that kind of anger in your heart, what are you guilty of? Murder. Stop it. Repent of it. If anger is your sin, if anger is, is causing you to get tripped up, if anger is your stumbling block, do whatever it takes to remove the anger from your life. Deal with it. If it's alcoholism, deal with it. If it's, he, if it's hedonism, if you just need to be entertained and pleased all the stinking time, deal with it. Learn to be disappointed. Learn to be discontent sometimes and learn that it's okay that you are not the center of the universe. If it's greed or pride or, or, or the filthy things that you entertain yourselves with, or if it's materialism that you've got to have stuff and you keep spending money to have all the things to keep up with the Joneses. Whatever it is that causes you to stumble and sin, beloved, it needs to go. Because it is far better to get rid of that one part of your life it is far better that that one part be removed from you than for your whole self to perish. A man can't have two masters. You can't submit to the lordship of lust. Or if it's something else, the lordship of self. You can't have that Lord and you can't submit to the Lord Jesus Christ at the same time. Beloved, you need to choose if the Lord has laid on your heart a conviction of sin that you have not yet repented of. You have to choose who is it going to be. It is a healthy thing. It is a good thing for believers to hear 
this kind of message. Scripture says to test yourself, to examine yourself. Know that you are in the faith. Know that your faith is genuine. 2015, a data breach occurred with Ashley, with the Ashley Madison website. And is a way, if you don't know what Ashley Madison is or was, I don't even know if it's still a th- thing. Um, uh, it is a website designed for people looking for the opportunity and the means to have an affair. You want to have an affair? You, you go to the clickety click and you create an account and you can find someone. At its peak. 32 million users. Now, as I said, there was a data breach. There was a hack in 2015. And as a result of this hack, thousands of accounts were exposed, including celebrities, politicians, and Christian pastors. And we hear about these things in the news when, 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 when people are caught in sin. People are exposed. Their sin, their deep, dirty, dark, secret life is exposed and brought into the light. And there are many others that we don't know what's going on under the hood. First Timothy 5.24 says this, and, and it, it, it's, it's re, uh, referring to both those whose sins are exposed and those that are not. First Timothy 5.24, the sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. We know why that person is in chains. We know why that person is going to prison. We know why that person is going to the executioner's block. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Their sins follow after. Whether your sins go before you or whether they go after you, your sins will find you out if they are not dealt with by God himself. The thousands whose accounts were discovered in the hack, whose sins were made evident, are relatively few in number compared to the millions and millions of people who think nobody's watching Nobody knows. Nobody will ever know. But the truth is their sins will follow after. You can't hide your sin from a God who knows and is fully acquainted with the contents of your heart. So what's it going to be? Which master are you going to serve? If you have stumbled in sexual sin, beloved, Forgiveness is there in Jesus Christ. You need to know that. Forgiveness is there. But you can't be forgiven for what you don't confess. You can't be forgiven for what you don't confess and what you don't bring before the Lord and what you don't lay at his feet and what you don't plead with him that his blood might cover that. And in case you, in case you have been snared in sexual sin, and this just, this just say that it's a really gross one. It is a, it is a sick one. How could God forgive sin like this? This, this kind of ick. Matthew chapter twelve tells us that there is an unforgivable sin, but it's not, it's, it's not sexual. 
The unforgivable sin is having a heart so hardened that it refuses to bow the knee in repentance. The unforgivable sin is having a heart that will not and cannot repent. What that means is any other sin can be forgiven if you bring it before the Lord. And so next week we're going to have communion. And I thought it would be appropriate to give you this message now because we, we normally uh, remind you that Paul uh, uh, strongly exhorts believers to examine themselves before partaking of the body. I want to give you a full week because as I said, this is something we, we don't often hear about. I, think it, I, I know it is something that many believers need to hear. Maybe someone here does. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not giving this, me- in case you're curious, I'm not giving this message because of anyone in the congregation that I think needs to hear it. Maybe you need to hear it, maybe you don't. If you do need to hear it, if you have been caught, repent, bring your sin before the Lord, be forgiven, be reconciled. And if there is no great icky, icky, icky sin in your life, great, fantastic. Protect your marriage. Protect your marriage. Protect your children. I, I, rec- you know, I, I had some trepidation uh, preparing this message, knowing that there are some kiddos in this room. But I think it's good for them to hear this because they, they need to see, A, that sex is not inherently bad. Sex is designed to be good. But B, your sons and your daughters need to see dad having the fear of God in their heart. Sons need to see their fathers treat their mothers with, with great reverence and fear and love and cherish, cherishing. Nothing sets up a child for failure and spiritual compromise than when he sees that dad has two standards, one for him and one for everybody else. As a, as a father and as a husband, if you demonstrate to your kids repentance when you sin, that will set them up for success. And then finally, protect your marriage, protect your, protect your spouse, protect your kids, protect your own soul. First Peter 2.11, I urge you, says Pastor Peter, to abstain from fleshly lusts that wage war against the soul. Beloved, use this week to examine yourself. Don't play around with sexual sin. Cut it out if you need to. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for, even, for passages even like this that are um, perhaps not embroidered on anyone's um, aprons or engraved on anyone's placards in the home, but are nevertheless important and vital for us to know and to be acquainted with. Help us to have mercy, grace, skill, and tact, and conviction in dealing with sexual sin. Where, where there needs to be repentance, bring that about. Protect the marriages, protect the families, protect the spouses and the children of this church. May the marriage bed be upheld and highly honored. And may sin be repented of. Amen.